exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am so excited for the show tonight, and I hope you are too. We've got a great lineup. The first half of the show is dedicated to local bands and musicians, including Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers and Chris Bathgate. But first, East Lansing-based band Frontier Ruckus was in town to perform this weekend. The Impact caught up with them at East Grand Record Company on Grand River this past Saturday, and here is the story. Frontier Ruckus is known for their descriptive lyrics that depict Midwest life. Their music has been described as a blend of bluegrass and folk to create a sense of a creaky back porch storytelling session. The band formed in the mid-2000s on the campus of Michigan State University. Literally across the street in West Circle. Frontman Matthew Milia lived in Landon Hall. Drummer Ryan Etzkorn lived in Campbell Hall. Trumpets saw melodica and keyboard player Zach Nichols lived in Gilchrist Hall. I actually learned how to play the saw right over there in Gilchrist Hall on the third floor. I remember it like it was yesterday. Since graduation, Frontier Ruckus went from playing in basements in West Circle Halls, Scene Metro Space, Max Bar, and the International Center to playing at Bonnaroo in 2010. They tour seven to eight months out of the year, with tours spanning across the United States. They also got back from their second European tour last May. Milia says Frontier Ruckus's music has reached a wide span of audiences over the years. It's so gratifying. I mean, people are just really eager to enjoy your music it seems. I mean, they just make themselves really accessible to it even if they don't speak your language which is very interesting because I have enough trouble explaining like prefacing a song or saying something before a song in English so then over there I'm just they just look at you with these grinning faces of total you don't know if they're saying maybe some of them are but somehow something <coughs> translates and they enjoy it often seem to <coughs> enjoy the, the songs more than English speaking people over here but drummer Etzkorn says it's refreshing to play in East Lansing again. Yeah, but then we come back to Lansing and people are a lot more familiar with some of the references that are in that songs. Because there are a lot of, or there are several kind of lines that bring to mind parts of East Lansing streets and places and stuff. Perpetually like Halloween I saw you. Millie agrees there is no better place to perform than what he describes as the nexus of the band's origins. There's no better place to be. That's, and our best shows are here. It's just the best all around for us because it's, um, I don't know. It's what the songs are about. It's, what the, it's the only place I can really write a, a song that really means anything to me because it's like, it's the only place that I actually feel tapped into. It, it houses all of those those kind of nebulous emotions I was talking about. So re-entering the actual physicality of the container of this place is, it's like a physical reaction. It's like a, it just, it activates the chemicals within me. It's a whole different uh, activation of, of being. You're, you're just like, whenever I'm elsewhere, I'm not as, I'm not as vital. I'm not, I don't feel as tapped into my actual life force. 
Milia says his connection to his home state has grown stronger since the band started touring, and that connection has influenced Frontier Ruckus's music. If anything, it's just gotten more obsessive about where we're from. Like the further we feel distance from it, the more, at least myself, more like psychologically, almost in a sort of neurotic way, back towards where I felt the most most comfortable and safe. Like I really, I talk about this campus as such a safe. In if I were to see a psychologist about it, it would probably be unhealthy. And the the way I build it up as a crutch <laughs> in my mind, as this perfect just this blanket of comfort. And it was a time. I mean, this is just something everyone has in their head. It's just this like kind of a place they can go to where it was simpler and it was easier and less threatening. So like when we're out in this big scary world in our little van, there's a lot of discomfort and. There's unreliable factors and stuff. So when I think about where I feel safest, it's always in the past and in my memory. So I write these really obsessive songs about it, which is very therapeutic for me. And I don't care what anybody says about it. <laughs> <laughs> While the band has been gaining national recognition over the years, Frontier Ruckus's drummer Etzkorn says they will always stay true to their beginnings. Yeah, that's funny because sometimes when we're touring in other cities <coughs> and whatnot, like cities that have more of a conventional. Um, reputation for music, like Nashville, we'll have friends or other musicians that'll be like, why do you still live in Michigan? Why don't you move down to Nashville or Durham or wherever? We're just like, mm, no, no, stay in Michigan. Frontier Ruckus will spend the next month touring the East Coast. Their latest EP titled Way Upstate and the Crippled Summer was released today. For Impact 89 FM, I'm Emily Fox. Mona's buying milk and honey from the summer bins in Milford Market. Outside the door, it sips the green ball And I work nine to five around the hiss of the icebox compartment. When I punch out, I want to send the night to bitter flames of licking. The town and all the passion stricken down. Darling, all those of our likeness were born So very ready to live Pitch dark within I thought we were only kids
Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. That was, again, Frontier Ruckus, and that was a song Mona and Emmy off of their newest EP released today called Way Upstate and the Crippled Summered Part 2. But up next, a leading Michigan contemporary folk artist, Chris Bathgate, was in town to perform last weekend. Here is my interview with him. You're tuned to Impact 89FM. I'm Emily Fox, and here I am with Chris Bathgate. We are on the Riverwalk here in downtown Lansing, about to get ready for Chris Bathgate's show here at The Loft. So, Chris, to start off, can you talk about your musical influences growing up and, and how that may affect the music that you play today? Uh, um, growing up, it was kind of a split between traditional American music that was sort of leaked to me through my uncles, through my family, and like really foul pop radio 90s <clears throat> music. I lived in a really rural area, so the two things that I really had access to were the sort of like, not necessarily MTV, but the sort of like pop radio scene of the early to mid 90s, and then all this sort of traditional American music. So while, you know, I was hearing Dookie on the radio station, I was hearing Sunhouse. Um, for my family, so it's sort of a mix between the two. Um, I don't know necessarily if the 90s music was an influence per se, because it's, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with that music in that time, um, but those are the two things that I was exposed to during that time. Can you talk about your songwriting process? What inspires you when you write songs? Um, is, is it something that kind of comes to you, or do you make it kind of like you make time to write music? Um... <clears throat> As far as the process, uh, sometimes it's a, like an intellectual pursuit where I'm actually sitting down and trying to write a song about a certain thing, a song of a certain type, or I'm going for something that's really particular. Um, other times it just sort of falls out of me um, just by nature of sort of living and <clears throat> I've been doing it for so long that it's sort of in my routine. So in a sense I don't ever really stop writing. If I'm walking down the street I'll be thinking about songs or about music. Um, it's just sort of at this point in my life I'm just sort of turned on to that so um, I, I guess there's sort of two sides to it one I'm always thinking about songs and I definitely make time to sit down like okay I have two hours tonight I'm gonna sit at the piano I'm gonna work on this chord progression or, so it's a little bit of both a little bit of sort of just ask thoughts come which is all the time every day 
but I also have a structured period of time that I try to work in week, week by week to write. What's your favorite song that you've ever written? I think my favorite song that I've written to date, it's probably, it's probably Everything Overture, which is the last track off of Salt Year. Um, it seems like a pretty succinct description of how I feel at this period of, in my life. So I think that that is probably, at this point, the favorite song um, that I've written. Day. So I noticed that your lyrics are usually very descriptive in a lot of your songs. Um, is that something that you purposely try to do? Is that, is that important to you in, in your music? I think um, being descriptive isn't necessarily important in, the, in lyric writing for me. <clears throat> it's more about trying to accurately express what I'm feeling at that time or represent an idea or emotion or a story. Uh, as accurately as possible. So a lot of the times that, that a lot of the time it has to be, uh, sometimes it's descriptive, but a lot of the times I'm just trying to bring about images in my own mind that remind me of that time or that sort of cause a release, I guess, of tension in my mind. So that's sort of what I'm going for. It's usually a release of tension in my mind that's, you know, if I've been stewing on a thought or an idea or a problem that I have. Uh, so not necessarily, I'm not necessarily writing to be descriptive, I'm writing to be accurate, I guess. And when you're performing, um, you know, on your tours or, or tonight, what, what goes through your mind while you're performing? Uh, a bunch of things go through my mind when I'm performing. Sometimes, it depends on what song, it depends on what night, it depends on what mood I'm in, there's a lot of variables. Um, sometimes I'm totally spaced out and it's sort of like muscle memory and my head is totally elsewhere. Where my thoughts may be are, is, usually changes just as much, I guess. Um, so sometimes I'm in the memory of what that song is trying to bring about. Sometimes I'm focused on audience members. Um, I like to look around and try to make eye contact with people as I play. Um, and sometimes it may be solely on my band and what they're doing and what I'm doing. So a lot of the time I'm either really intensely listening to what is going on on stage am totally spaced out or any sort of variation uh, in between. So you're from, or, or you live in Ypsilanti or <clears throat> Ann Arbor area? Uh, I live in Pinckney, Michigan. Pinckney, okay. Pinckney, Michigan. I used to live in Ypsilanti. I used to live in Ann Arbor. I've been sort of bumming around the area for maybe about whew, 10 years now. So is that still considered Southeast Michigan? I think so, Pinkney? yeah. Okay, so you live in Southeast Michigan. I live in Southeast Michigan, yeah. So, uh, what is that like uh, to perform in the state versus, I mean, you're in between tours right now. Mm -hmm. So what is that like to come back and perform in Michigan where you live versus traveling elsewhere? Um, I definitely know people in the audience on a personal level, which is always interesting, I guess. Sometimes it's easier to sing or perform or play songs in front of a room full of strangers. Um, you can sort of get into yourself a little easier or get into some performative version of yourself. Uh, my friends don't often let me do that. And I have friends in like New York and other places too and I, there's a room full of a lot of people that I know personally. The vibe tends to be a lot different than a room full of strangers if I'm, you know, if I'm playing Boise or something like that. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, I guess, like sort of my ability to transcend myself, I guess. It's more difficult when I have friends in the audience because they're usually, well, I've, I have really good friends but sometimes they just like to heckle me 
Uh, so there's a little bit of a riff there that sort of snaps me out of that performative mindset. So how would you describe Michigan's music community that you're involved in? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. The, I would describe the music community right now as... Well, it's interesting. I just went to this meeting that happened at Woodruff's that was curated by Jeff Milo. He does writing for the Metro Times. He's sort of like, he's around. He does a lot of writing about Michigan music and about music in general. And this meeting that I went to was also all about how do we rally national attention to this music scene. That was sort of the question that was posed and a lot of people, there was a panel of speakers. Um, so I guess I learned a lot in that meeting because I feel like I've been a little bit removed. I've been sort of gone for a long time and I also feel like <clears throat> I'm at a point where I've continually played with people that I know so it's really difficult for me to meet new bands, especially new bands that are doing stuff that's uh, really interesting or like I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of beginning bands uh, or like bands that are really early out in their careers as writers or as performers so they're sort of working out some kinks <clears throat> and sometimes that's like uh, I mean that represents a part of the scene I guess but um, I feel a little disconnected at this point I think um, just because I've been more focused on trying to work function nationally rather than locally um, as far as what I think about this music community. I think it's super strong. I think there's a ton of talented people in Michigan, uh, and I feel like very few of them are receiving the national attention they probably deserve. That may be true of every music scene, but it's definitely true of the Michigan music scene. I think it's super healthy, I think it's super vibrant, and I think that there are people excelling in many genres as writers and performers. So Salt Year came out in the past year. In um, April, yeah. In April. So are you working on anything new right now? I actually just finished an EP. Um, called Old Factory. Um, I don't know how much I can say about it, but I'll, I guess I'll say what I feel I can say about it. Um, it's uh, five songs that are all about triggered memories, uh, memories that were triggered by a scent or by uh, something that I saw or something that I heard. <clears throat> so memories that were triggered by my senses. Um, it's, uh, musically, it's kind of scattered as the memories are and it's going to come out on a bar soap. It's not going to come out as a compact disc or vinyl. It's going to come with a download card and on a bar soap. Um, and maybe I'll say in a real short way why um, the first memory that I sing about on the EP is about a memory inspired by smell. And there's one in particular my Aunt Lois makes soap. She lives in rural Illinois, which is where I grew up. Um, she sort of taught me how to make it, so I have these memories associated with this certain type of lye soap. So I'm sort of trying to make that sensory experience real, I guess. Instead of singing about it, I actually want to present it along with these memories that I have. Are we going to hear any of those songs tonight? Uh, yeah, you're going to hear one. At least two, maybe. And when does this EP come out? It's going to come out probably in mid-January. We haven't announced an official release date, but we may on Monday. Um, so keep your ears to the ground, I guess, on that one. So do you think your music has changed over the years since you started performing? Absolutely. My music has changed. Um, over the years, my music has become, I guess, more focused. I've had more time to concentrate on it, and lyrically, I've become less verbose. When I was younger and in college, I used to sort of cram my songs with all these sort of grad school GRE words and, like, really try to, you know, spice up the language I was using. I was so 
sort of tired of listening to the same songs that sounded like songs. I don't know if that makes sense, but sometimes you can tell that if the song's sort of using a cliched, interesting way, I guess I'm, I was just tired of it, you know. Maybe some of that has to do with the mid-90s music that I talked about earlier, but um, I think I've toned that down quite a bit, and as time has gone on, I focused on trying to say less in a more articulate way rather than cramming my music with all these verbose words that while sometimes describe things very accurately but for the most part bog me down I think as an artist. So would you consider yourself or, or for Michigan to be your home base? Absolutely I've been here I've been in Michigan um, for 10 years so it definitely feels like my home base. Um, and and do, you do you hope that Michigan will continue to be your home base? I would very much like for Michigan to be my home base, but I may move. I don't want to say anything. Like, I have made plans to move from Michigan. I have, you know, I'm not going to disappear to Brooklyn or L.A. anytime soon, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next two to five years I sort of change locale. So my final question for you is, is what do you want listeners to get out of your music? Uh, what do I want listeners to get out of my music? Um, I sort of see it like this. I code things a lot. Um, so that it's sort of like, have you ever seen a, uh, Unsolved Mysteries where they change the name and the location to protect the innocent? I sort of do that a lot because my songs are, especially Salt Year, are really derivative of my personal life, um, which in a lot of ways I like to separate as much as I can, even though that's what I'm singing about. Um, so, in a sense, I sort of feel like I'm putting this catalyst out into the world and that people are allowed to interact with it and engage with it and bring it into their life on their own terms. Um, so I guess I'm just hoping for a reaction. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily one that should be in line with how I react to that music, but I just want it to be something. Um, I want people to have an emotional or intellectual reaction to what they're listening to. So overall, that's what I like. I don't want them to be like, oh, that's about your friend so-and-so when this was sort of happening. That stuff, it, it doesn't really matter so much. Um, there's this thing that T.S. Eliot says about uh, you can't, I feel like I'm going to get this quote wrong, but you can't, uh, you can't describe the emotion to someone and have them feel it. You have to describe the conditions in which that emotion exists and then they'll feel it. So that's sort of what I'm going for, but sort of on my own terms of coding. Um, so I think that's what I want listeners to get. I think those are all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, Mittenfest is coming. Your listeners should know about Mittenfest. What is Mittenfest? Mittenfest, this year is a five-day festival happening at Woodruff's in Ypsilanti, and all the proceeds benefit an organization, a nonprofit called 826 Michigan, which is focused on after-school tutoring, writing programs, literacy programs, basically <clears throat> they get kids excited about writing and about language. Um, and it's five days. They have just announced a lineup. It's an amazing lineup, mostly local Michigan artists. Uh, so it's sort of this sort of DIY five-day music festival, but for a really incredible cause. So your listeners should know about Mittenfest. It's coming. Excellent. And, and you're, you're also involved in, in various causes. I know that um, you've done stuff for like, the LGBT community and things like that. I've well. played a lot of benefit shows. Um, I identify as an ally, so it seems like lately the best way I can sort of support them is by playing for free to help them raise funds or to raise awareness. 
<clears throat> uh, I'm a strong ally. It's one of the things I believe most in is that there's still this sort of like human right loose end dangling in the world. Um, not that other things aren't, you know, problematic, but it seems like that's that's one thing that I'm really passionate about. And then I also worked for a nonprofit called The Neutral Zone, which is a youth center, teen center in Ann Arbor for a few years. That's an incredible organization that's also sort of like helping out young people with soft skills and not just giving them something to do after school, but sort of working on them as individuals. Um, and then I work for 826 um, whenever I can help out. So. Well, I'm here with Chris Bathgate. I'm Emily Fox, your host, and uh, we are here in downtown Lansing on the River Walk, and uh, we're getting ready for Chris Bathgate's show here at The Loft. Chris Bathgate, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. That was Chris Bathgate, and that last song was called Levy off of his most recent album, Salt Year. And tonight at Exposure, we are featuring, featuring some great local bands. This week, Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers will release uh, their uh, first full-length album on the 8th, which is actually a week from today. Um, but in the studio, we have the Rainbow Seekers from Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow <laughs> Seekers. Joe Hurtler cannot make it in tonight. But we've got the Rainbow Seekers here to talk about the band. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. So can you guys go around and introduce who you are and what you play? I'm Rick, also known as Pine Top to some. Um, I play drums. I'm Sean, and I play lots of things, but most importantly, I play 
1984 and xylophone bells. What's nineteen? What's the 1984? The 1984 is a reed accordion. It was actually given to Joe by his grandpa. Yeah. Oh. It's very special. It says 1984 on the front. It's Great. easy to recognize. Very <laughs> cool. So, you guys have a new album coming out. What can you tell us about it? Oh, sorry. I need to introduce oh, you. Oh, I'm okay. so sorry, Kevin. I just Kevin. started talking. I can't <laughs> turn. Uh, my name is Kevin. I play bass. Okay. That's now, pretty, pretty much it nowadays. That's all I worry about. That's all I worry about. So, can you guys talk about this new album coming out a week from today? Yeah. Uh, so, this album has been... It's consumed all of our 2011. It's literally consumed everything, uh, our entire lives for the last 10, 11 months. Uh, we only... Rick and I met and uh, jumped in the band probably... Uh, it was actually New Year's Eve 2011. And that also formally launched the recording process, and uh, we really didn't finish until late August of this year. So it's been it's, it's been, been a lengthy time. Long journey. I mean, when was when were most of these songs written? Uh, a handful of them were. Uh, uh, there were three that were written before we started, and then the other seven uh, kind of came out while we were recording. I mean, what inspired? So originally it was Joe Hurtler, and then it was Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers. What inspired him to be like, I want the Rainbow Seekers now? <laughs> well, initially it was Ryan, because Ryan is uh, Ryan is the other Rainbow Seeker who's not present. So we keep Joe in a separate category. <laughs> um, who's He's a very abrasive individual, and he just made Joe... Uh, made Joe play with him. He saw him at a coffee shop and basically approached him and was like, you have to let me play with you. <laughs> and that's how that started. And then uh, Joe, through, uh, through a couple of uh, bands dropping, ended up playing, um, what's that festival called? Uh, Mittenfest? Mittenfest. Oh, last year in Ypsilanti. And he felt awkward being the only solo act of the day. So he uh, pulled Rick and I in on that one as well. And uh, we just, it was, <laughs> that was the official formation. We were practicing in a hotel room the day of the show without any real instruments. <laughs> and Sean was there, too. That was before Sean officially jumped on. But Sean was there, too. And I was, I tuned the ukulele we had to a bass tuning so we could practice and not get yelled at by the neighbors. And <laughs> I think Rick was beating on a kitchen table. And it was, that was our first practice ever. And I, I can't believe it's come this far in 11 months. We were nowhere uh, less than a year ago. So what what how did you guys come up with the name The Rainbow Seekers? There's an album called Rainbow Seeker by a guy named Joe Sample. Not entirely sure when the album was recorded, but it's one of the most... Mid to late grueling. 70s. Okay. It's just a very, very soulful album. We liked it so much. We played it so much that we decided to... At about 5 in the morning on too. one night, yeah. we were like, we're all Rainbow Seekers, too. <laughs> and sure enough, apparently we are Rainbow Seekers now. <laughs> Excellent. So you guys have been only been around for about 10 months. What have been some of the highlights of you guys performing and playing music? Hmm. We played a lot of shows. It's hard to pick. Where do you guys usually play? a lot of places already yeah. uh highlight i know i know the highlight i know it specifically um we were in pontiac and we were playing at the fusion show's birthday bash in pontiac and we played upstairs in the pike room and i'm not exactly sure <laughs> what what got into us that night but everybody was really really fired up and uh we were playing uh we were playing a song called booty town which is <laughs> not on the album but <laughs> 
it, it, things got really, really intense. And uh, like I remember we finished playing, and it was the first time I can ever recall the crowd was yelling so loud, my ears hurt from it. And that was the that was that was it. There was the most louder amazing. Than we were. Yeah, they were louder far. than we were, and the crowd was just going crazy. And then Ryan yelled back at the crowd because he's so abrasive, and it's just a really funny memory mm-hmm. that I have. And I wish I had earplugs. I'm sure I took some damage that day. But. Yeah. So you guys recently made a music video during our homecoming parade here at Michigan State <laughs> University. That's can you highlight. can you can you talk that about was... that? How that came about and how the video is turning out. Uh, I thought I was joking for about the last two months. Two months ago, I like I don't remember how I found it, but I was like, hey guys, haha, I submitted us for the homecoming day parade at MSU. No word for two months. And then I got an email two weeks before the parade that was like, you've been accepted. Please be here at such and such time. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, I guess we got to do... What I and I was like, oh yeah, we'll film a video. It'll be sweet. But in the back of my head, I was like, this is never gonna happen. This is never gonna work out. And somehow it all came together. Like huge shout out Matt Hollowell, if you're listening. Yeah. He we called him with like a week to go, and he's like, yeah, we'll make this happen. And he got a crew. He got all the cameras, and we gathered everybody we knew. Giant bubble machine. Giant, bubble, our giant friend, bubble machine. Our friend Eric grabbed his truck and a bubble machine. And we were we were, the PA to the roof. we were definitely the oddballs in the parade. <laughs> the whole premise was that we weren't going to show the truck in the shot ever. So it's my buddy Eric's just horrible, <laughs> horrible beat-up pickup truck. Smoke-spewing pickup And it truck. was, I look over, and it was, like, burning oil so bad. And it's, like, this terrible-looking truck. And it was, like, spewing smoke out so bad that I literally saw a kid on the parade route, like, get blown smoke in his face and start coughing. And I was just like... <laughs> I'm so sorry, MSU. I'm so sorry. But from uh, from the perspective of the shot we were taking, it looked great. So just the truck never made an appearance in the video. That's for sure. Yeah, the impact the impact van was right behind the with the sports car racing team. So you got <laughs> oh, these geez. muscle cars just like revving their engines. And I was walking there with my little impact pencils. I'm like, ah. I feel like I'm getting dizzy. <laughs> yeah, uh, by, the, by the third take, we were all quite dizzy from the smoke spewing truck. But mm-hmm. so, what what song did you record? We did "Ego Loss." Yes, it's, "Ego it, Loss" on Grand River, which mm-hmm. makes sense because mm-hmm. the parade mm-hmm. happened. It was actually on Grand, on Grand River. River. It was too sweet go. an opportunity, which is why I, you know I I signed up and I was really hoping it was going to work, but I, I still can't believe it did. So let's. Can you set a scene for our listeners before we play this song? So it's, it's, it's. Uh, we've got Joe Hurtler. Where you guys? So show us what it looks like. Take us through. Okay. Uh, you're on Grand River. There's a parade going on. It's just Joe with it, walking with his acoustic guitar. He starts playing and singing. Uh, you'll feel it as the song goes. Uh, the basic premise of the song is just Joe realizing uh, that everybody is kind of the same and we're all. You know, we're all cut from the same mold, I feel like, and it kind of <laughs> exploded his ego, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he, he he can tell the actual story, but we wanted to recreate it as close as possible in the video. And as, uh, you know, the song builds and everything joins in, uh, gradually more and more people join into this parade walking down Grand River until it turns into this giant... Uh, it builds this really big point, and then for some reason, bubbles come in. Bubbles, <laughs> balloons, a unicycle. When the trumpet hits, think <laughs> bubbles. That's all you got to know. All right. So with that, um, I've got uh, we've got Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers. More like the Rainbow Seekers in the studio right now. <laughs> and this is um, this song is Eagle Loss on Grand River here on Impact 89 FM. We are. We are Jesus and we are Satan We gave them bodies and we gave them faces We are their part still made 
skin changes. We are ten thousand dead in a war that was won. We are the fall, the spirit, and the smoking gun. We are the future that will repeat what we've done. We are a mother with a bag over her head and a father in the cold with a drink in his hands. We got a divorce that never found its scent. We are uphill that fell down a road, a silent specter that hides in old homes. We are the closet monster waiting to the child alone. You are tuned to Impact 89 FM. That was Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers, and that song was Eagle Loss on Grand River. We've got the Rainbow Seekers here in the studio joining us on Impact Exposure. So where can people find this video once it's once it is released or finished? It'll be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> MTV. No, I don't know. I have, we haven't thought that far ahead. Again, we didn't think this was actually going to happen until like a week prior to the parade. So. But I'm sure if you search for Joe Hurtler. On the internet. On the internet hopefully you'll the get internet. to the Tumblr or the Facebook. And we'll put it on YouTube and Vimeo. Vimeo. And Vimeo. And Geo Facebook. Cities. And uh, Homestead and GeoCities. <laughs> and Lycos. Google. Ask It'll Jeeves. be on Google. Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves where it's at. He'll tell you. <laughs> so I, I notice when when Joe plays, he usually plays with a with a flag on his back. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you guys do that as well? Or is that just him? We usually <laughs> wear it for coats. And and what is that about? Joe, these are things that I've never got around to questioning Joe on. He's always worn either an American flag or a Michigan flag when he plays. He has the. I mean, the first time I saw him play was a couple years ago. He opened it for Frontier Ruckus at Max and. I was like, hey, there's a kid up there wearing a Michigan flag. <laughs> Playing a 1984 box wearing Playing a Michigan something flag. Something that says 1984, and here I am two years later. Playing stand, that Standing behind the kid wearing a Michigan flag. Playing the 1984. So you guys have some shows coming up this week. Can you talk about those? November 3rd, this Thursday at Max Bar in Lansing. It's a CD release show. And Friday, Mount Pleasant at Rubble's Bar. It's the fourth. It's also a CD release show. Playing with both of us. Both of us? <laughs> <laughs> Playing at both of those shows is a band called Prussia out of Detroit, who's wicked good. 
uh, at the Lansing show. There's also Kelly Deanne and the Octagon Band, as well as the Shoutaways, who are also great Lansing projects. And then we've got Jetpack on in the uh, Rubble show, <laughs> as well as uh, American, American Opera. Opera, which is a spinoff of uh, Your Best Friend. So uh, for the, for our local folks out there, it's again, it's November 3rd at Max Bar, which is this Thursday. Two days. So before I take you guys out, um, I want to play a song, What It Feels Like. Can you guys talk about this song at all before you guys want to say anything before it's played or just let it go? Uh-huh. Just let it go, I think. Well, just... Rick would say that. I'll say <laughs> <laughs> I'll say there's two cool things you should listen to on this, but I'm biased because I... This is one of the songs where I got to be a pop producer as opposed to a rock producer, so I kind of went over the over the deep end. <laughs> if you listen to your right headphone or your right speaker, if you're driving in your automobile right now, there's a sweet effect that I uh, ripped off from the Beach Boys. Uh-oh. And it's a reverse reverb. So it sounds like somebody goes, and that's how the voice starts, and that's going to be the right harmony on everything. So hopefully I edited that part into the song. Oh, it's everywhere. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so again, thank you, Rainbow Seekers of Joe Hartler and the Rainbow Seekers for joining us <laughs> thank tonight. You, um, they us. they have their new album. What is the album called? On Being. On Being. Um, and that'll be released a week from today. And they have a show uh, this Thursday, 7 p.m. at Max Bar. If you come Thursday, you'll get a copy, though. And, and you can get a copy. Secret, secret. <laughs> and this song is called What It Feels Like by Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers here on Impact 89 FM. Dancing is everywhere today. Dancing with the stars and So You Think You Can Dance have thrust ballroom into the mainstream. Exposure reporter Emmanuel Berry explores how Spartans are kicking up their heels. Sadly, we're not a demonic cult. Two lines fill the space of Dem Hall with music playing on the edge of hearing. Nearly 30 girls wearing black buckled heels look over anxiously at the six boys across the room. 
Between them, a couple presses their palms together and they begin to lean into the rhythm of cha-cha-cha. This isn't a sad high school dance. This is practice for MSU's ballroom dance team. The MSU ballroom dance team teaches students the different styles of ballroom dancing. Three years ago, the club had around 10 members. Now, they have 75. One of those new members is Biosystems engineering student Ryan Carter. Ryan joined the club because he likes how dance makes him feel. When I dance, I, I feel invigorated, I feel alive, and it's, it helps me calm down and just, just relax. The more I can dance, the more I can move, the more relaxed and, and the more fun I can have. The MSU Ballroom Club holds weekly dance lessons and practice sessions led by senior club members and professional dancers. Members learn smooth dances like the waltz, foxtrot, and tango, and rhythm dances such as swing, mambo, and cha-cha. Former Ballroom Club Secretary and President Sherry Anderson said people are often surprised by their dancing ability. Even if they come in thinking, oh my god, my friend dragged me in here, there's no possible way I can do this, like, we're like, oh yeah, you can, just watch, just watch, give us a couple weeks, and then they're like, oh my god, I'm dancing, whoa, and we're like, mm-hmm. Club members take the moves they have learned across the Midwest, participating against other colleges in ballroom dance competitions. Anderson said the club was not always competitive, and only within the past three years has the club started going to competitions. We finally had people coming in wanting to dance with like Dancing with the Stars on TV and stuff. We slowly, painfully got this together. It was a lot of work, but it's like my baby, all grown up, got people dancing and stuff. It's great. Dancing and winning. Ballroom competitions have winners for each type of dance at five different skill levels. The top six are awarded ribbons. MSU's team typically takes four places out of six in each level in dance. New member Ryan Carter said there is one other benefit to joining the ballroom team. There's, like tonight, there's, what, a six-to-one ratio of girls, and they're all good-looking, so it's a great way to meet new friends, and once you start to dance and you start to become involved in it, you realize that you're going to want somebody you can be able, you can be able to dance with. There's a lot of sensual dances out there. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emmanuel Berry. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. John Waller is a professor in Lyman Briggs College. He studies the history of medicine, and he is here today to talk about his research on what is called the dancing plague or dancing mania. Welcome to the show, John Waller. Thank you. Good evening. So what is dancing mania? This is a um, a very, very strange disorder that um, cropped up a few times from about the 1300s right into the 1500s. And it basically involved people dancing compulsively, dancing sometimes for days and days. They couldn't stop. They didn't want to dance. They were in a a, a bizarre kind of trance state. And in some cases, particularly the one that I um, discuss in in a book, um, they die. So um, it is really it's a state of compulsive, crazed dancing. And do do, does anyone know what causes it? Well, 
there have been a few explanations over the years. For the most part, people just refuse to believe that this could be true, but it is actually very clear on closer inspection that it happened, and it, it happened as people recorded it at the time. One theory is that they had ingested ergot, and this is a mould that, that grows on rye, and it, has some, it can have some really severe hallucinogenic effects. That doesn't seem to be the explanation here. What seems to have happened is that people in the part of Europe where it happened had a belief that there was a particular kind of saint, Saint Vitus, and you could be cursed by Saint Vitus to dance. And once these people became convinced they'd been cursed, then they started this mad dance, and it would go for one for days after days after days. So this happened in the 16th century, um, the, the largest um, episode, I suppose. Um, how did people react yeah. to those that were taking part in this dancing mania? Well, they're pretty bemused, as you'd expect. The, the one that I write about happened in 1518, and it starts off with one woman, and she starts dancing, and it goes on and on. And at first... People say at the time that, uh, she, in fact, they say she's doing it to irritate her husband. Um, then they think that she's been possessed by the devil, and then they decide that she's been cursed by St. Vitus. But it takes a few days, and by that time, her feet are bloody. Um, she's probably worn her feet almost to the bone, and they finally load her onto a carriage and they take her away. And then within a few days, about 20 people doing it. Within a couple of weeks, 200, and then 400, and it just goes on and on and on. It gets bigger and bigger. So do you think they're all dancing to the to the same beat, or is it just kind of their own dance dancing in a square together? I mean, what did that look like, I wonder? Well, we don't know what the dance looked like, um, apart from really strange. Um, there's no sense that they were dancing with one another. They seemed to have been completely in their own worlds. And they weren't happy, but they were in a trance. So they probably weren't experiencing anywhere near the pain they would have done had they, had they been in a proper conscious state. Um, the, one of the weird things about it, though, is what the, the authorities did. They realised they had to do something about it. It was getting out of control and it was, it was embarrassing. So they actually set up a great big stage in the middle of the city and they hired musicians and dancers. And so within about a week of this beginning, you've got this incredibly unusual spectacle of all these people dancing madly and then hired dancers who were holding them, keeping them on their feet, making them dance more and more. And then the whole stage is surrounded by people playing the flute, people playing the drums, any instrument they could lay their hands on they were playing. Because they, they had this idea that these people needed to essentially dance it out of themselves. <laughs> and so the result of that was to make it an awful lot worse, because the more people saw them doing this dance, the more they began to suspect that they had been cursed as well. And then people started clambering onto the stage and joining them. And this is a point at which the numbers got higher and higher and higher. So it was kind of like the rave of the 1600s. Yes, yes, without, <laughs> without any kind of jollity, and it was, as far as we can tell, completely involuntary. But it's, um, in some ways it's quite, it would have looked quite close to a particularly wild rave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what fascinates you the most when you were doing research for this book, and what is the title of the book called? The book is A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. And, and what, was, what fascinated you the most when you were doing this research for this book? There are a few things. I mean, first of all, when I realised that this had happened and it was probably the strangest thing I'd ever heard of. I mean, we're not talking about large numbers of people dying, but the idea that even one person could die of dancing is pretty remarkable. And we're talking here probably of dozens. And that, you know, they're dancing in a very, very hot summer in the middle of France. Um, so it's not surprising that some of them keeled over and, and, and died. 
Um, but it was a number of things, that, that just how badly the authorities responded to it. And then there were also some really tantalising elements. When they finally intervene again and they get rid of this stage, um, they fire all the dancers and the, um, the musicians, they load these people onto wagons and they take them to a shrine in the mountains nearby dedicated to St Vitus. And there they make them wear red shoes. And I've got no idea why they made them wear red shoes. But, but that memory of compulsive wild dancing and wearing shoes, particularly red shoes, seems to have lingered on in the imagination of Europeans. And so it crops up again and again in fairy tales. Hmm, very interesting. So when I was doing research, um, I was reading a website and they said that the Pied Piper was an example of dancing mania. You've got a few cases um, in earlier centuries that people suggest the results of dancing mania. Um, it's really hard to tell because one thing that most um, bishops and popes disapproved of was dancing because it got people very excited and they, there was a serious danger of them doing really inappropriate things. <laughs> and so often they would be a, cobble together these stories which involved people dancing, um, too much excitement, and then they would meet a horrible end. So um, there are lots of these stories. Some of them may be examples of compulsive dancing. It's really, really hard to tell. But you can see why the Pied Piper, people suggest, is the dancing mania. The, the, the kids follow the Pied Piper dancing um, out of the city, and then, and then most of them die. We, we just don't know. So what ended up happening to the dancers? How long did these, did these dancing episodes go on for, and, and how do people kind of get out of this dancing trance, I guess? The, actually, the biggest one was in the late uh, 1300s, and it follows a whole series of massive disasters, floods and harvest failures and diseases and the rest of it. Um, in that case, it went on for about three or four months, and we're talking about thousands of people on and off dancing wildly, absolutely uncontrollably. <laughs> um, this one in the early 1500s, maybe four, 500 people were involved at one point or another, and it went all the way from July into September. It only stopped when they took these people to the shrine, and they seem to have been just about conscious enough to work out that, well, that ought to appease the saint, and the curse has probably been lifted, I've done enough, and then they seemed to calm down, and then they went back, and there are no more reported cases of it. So does anything like this happen, happen today? Well, not exactly today, but in Madagascar in the mid-1800s, there was an episode which was incredibly similar to this, uh, people dancing and dancing into a trance and then running wildly and dancing around the countryside. More, the, the closest we get to it now are episodes of mass hysteria, where you will get... Um, it's, it's actually really commonly in very strict boarding schools, uh, particularly in certain parts of Africa. There was a recent one in Mexico where... Uh, in particular, young girls under loads of pressure at around about exam time will break down, and it's contagious. It spreads like wildfire among their classmates. But uh, uh, quite of, a famous of crying? one. Oh, well, there, there was a very famous one in the 1960s in Tanzania where at a girls' boarding school, one girl started to um, cry and laugh compulsively. And this carried on and on and on. And then several of her classmates started doing the same thing again. And then the school made a bit of a mistake. They sent all the kids home. 
So they took it all home to their villages. And in the villages, oh, no. more children than adults started laughing and crying by turns. And it gradually petered out. So these things do happen. People continue to break down in very, very strange ways. And do you think that this, that going back to the idea of dancing mania, do you think that that could ever happen again in this day and age? It's hard to believe. Actually, the, um, the, the BBC radio just aired a play which was based on the idea that it was happening today. And in fact, they tried to reproduce the effect of the famous uh, Orson Welles um, uh, um, uh, um, account of alien visitations. So um, it's presented as something which is happening now, an ongoing news item. And apparently a lot of people were quite scared. This, this was broadcast a couple of weeks ago. But it, it seems very unlikely. You've got to have pretty extreme beliefs in the supernatural. And everybody's got to share these beliefs. And the authorities have to do something really silly, uh, like making people dance in public. I suppose it's just about conceivable in some places, maybe um, other parts of the world. But um, I'm not banking on this happening anytime soon. So, so you're, again, um, I'm talking to, jo to John Waller. He's the author of A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. Um, and he's with uh, the Lyman Briggs College of Science in the Department of History here at Michigan State University. And you focus on the history of medicine, um, psychiatry, and the evolutionary mm -hmm. biology. So focusing on the history of medicine, um, you know, can you talk about the advances of medicine and, and maybe how you may have diagnosed or treated these people that had these dancing mania episodes? Well, a lot's changed. When, um, when this dancing was clearly getting out of control, the first thing the authorities did was invite the doctors to give their opinion. And rather unwisely, they followed it. Um, what the doctors said, and this was very, very conventional for medicine at the time, they said basically these people had cooked brains, that uh, the weather was very, very hot, um, and th this meant that they had too much blood. The blood went to their brains and it made them behave like lunatics. And it's not entirely clear why, but they were the ones who suggested that these people dance more. So, I mean, clearly this is not what would be prescribed today. Um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what would be prescribed today. Probably in the first instance, very heavy sedatives. Um, but you'd expect some kind of psychotherapy and pharmaceuticals to follow. Um, but, yeah, you, you can be rest assured that the, the response would be an awful lot more effective. So do you, do you teach this in any of your classes on campus? I do in, in a few. I mean, it, it's a, it gives a nice example of the way doctors thought at that time and, of course, of how much things have advanced. But I think it's also um, a nice example of just how strange the human mind is capable of being, that uh, depending on what people at a any time and place believe, they can break down in the strangest fashions. I think what really interested me about this story is it really shows one of the, the outer limits of what our mind is capable of making us doing. That's very, very true. Um, so again, in the studio, I have John Waller. He is a professor in Lyman Briggs. He studies the history of medicine. And he is here to, today to talk about his research regarding what is called Dancing Media. And that book is called A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. Uh, John Waller, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Impact Exposure. Thank you. Good night. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.